Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to a history of Europe, key battles, the Battle of Hastings, part two of two. Since the late 10th century, the Kingdom of England had suffered a renewed wave of Viking attacks, culminating in its takeover by Canute the Great, King of the Danes, in 1016. During his reign, the raid had lessened. A principal reason for this is that the Scandinavian people, including the Vikings, were in a state of transition. Many of the region's leaders were converting to Christianity and starting to unite into the beginnings of today's Norway, Sweden and Denmark. Also, one important group of Vikings had settled in northern France, where over the years they had turned their back on their pagan past and established a powerful new Christian state, Normandy. In the early 1060s, the Anglo-Saxon King of England, Edward the Confessor, was in ailing health and had no children or any obvious heirs. Unlike the Normans, where the eldest son of a deceased duke by birthright inherited the throne, the rules of succession were much less clear in Anglo-Saxon Britain. The main considerations in the selection of the heir were 1. Royal blood 2. Nomination by the late king 3. Election by the Witan, that is the Council of National Leaders and 4. The perceived ability of the candidate to defend the people from outsiders. During the 1050s, the man expected to succeed Edward was the son of Edmund Ironside, Edward the Exile, who had lived most of his life out the country, since the time Canute took sole control of England. He was invited back to England in 1057, but died within two days of his arrival. We do not know, but there is a strong possibility that he was murdered. The prime suspect is Harold Godwinson, Earl of Wessex, by then the most powerful man in the kingdom. This suspicion is based on him having the means, that is an army behind him, the opportunity and the motive. That is, if it was on his orders, it would be to clear the path to taking the throne himself. But this is only conjecture, not a known fact. So in the beginning of 1066, with Edward the Confessor on his deathbed, there were four contenders. 1. Edward the Exile had a son, Edgar the Aetheling. He had the royal blood, but at only about 14 years of age, would not have been in a position to lead the kingdom's defences. 2. Harold Hadrada, the King of Norway, 
despite the lack of Anglo-Saxon royal blood, had his eye on the throne. His nickname can be translated as Hard Bargainer, or Hard Ruler. He is described in the sagas as being exceptionally tall, fair-haired, bearded and with big hands and feet. Although a Christian, he dedicated his life to fighting and hoarding gold. By 1066, at least 50 years of age, he'd had a very eventful life. He'd been exiled from his native Norway after losing a battle against Canute the Great. So he fled to Byzantium, where he was offered a position in the military by the Empress Zoe, daughter of Basil II, the Bulgar Slayer. Soon he became chief of the Varingian Guard, an elite unit of the Byzantine army and the emperor's bodyguards, who were composed mainly of Scandinavian warriors. Having made a fortune fighting in Italy, Asia Minor and probably Bulgaria, he returned north and forcefully won for himself the throne of Norway. Then, after more than a decade fighting unsuccessfully for Denmark, Harold was offered another opportunity. Tostig, the eldest brother of Harold Godwinson, an Earl of Northumbria, had been exiled from England after falling out with the Northumbrians. Angry with his brother for not supporting him, he cast around for anyone who would help him return to England and fight for the throne himself. Eventually he reached Norway and managed to persuade Harold Hadrada to help. The exact agreement between the two is not known. The Norwegian king would undoubtedly have accepted on the condition of becoming king himself, perhaps offering Tostig his erdom back. So in the summer of 1066, on hearing of the death of Edward the Confessor, they set sail to invade. The third contender was Harold Godwinson, the most powerful nobleman of England. The chronicler Odoric Vitalis wrote of Harold that he was very tall and handsome, remarkable for his physical strength, his courage and eloquence. He proved his abilities and courage on the battlefield during a series of successful campaigns in 1062 to 1063 against the ruler of Wales, Griffith ap Flewellyn of Gwynedd. Griffith had been a formidable opponent, having forcibly united the Welsh peoples over the previous two decades, but died in 1063. Godwinson also seemed to have had an affable nature and got on with the king better than his father had. The fourth contender for the throne was, of course, William, Duke of Normandy, whose claim was based on his grandfather being the brother of Emma of Normandy, wife of Ethelred the Unready and mother of Edward the Confessor. The bio tapestry famously portrays how while Harold was held in Normandy, William compelled him to swear an oath to support the Duke's claim to the English throne. This became an important part of Norman propaganda once Harold claimed the throne himself. He was denounced as an oathbreaker, which was a serious charge in the medieval world. In the previous podcast, I briefly told the history of Normandy from its creation in 911, when the Viking leader, Rollo, was granted a small area of land by the King of France, to the rule of Duke Richard II, 
by which time that land had expanded and the Norman leaders had transformed themselves into model Christian dukes and among the most powerful magnates of France. Richard's son was Robert the Magnificent, who continued the able rule of the duchy. In 1034, Robert set out on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Before leaving, he made his eight-year-old illegitimate son, William, his heir. I described in the podcast on the Battle of the Clydon Pass how the Byzantine Emperor Basil II had persuaded the Fatimid Caliph in Cairo to permit Christian pilgrims to visit the Holy Land unharmed. This is what made it possible for the Norman Duke to make the venture. A year after Robert had departed, news came back that the Duke had died on his return journey. The manner of his death, in some ways, made it easier for William to attain power, because during the time it took the news to reach home, other potential rivals had already sworn loyalty to William, and the court had already been established. For his first years, William was a mere pawn in court politics. Real power lay in the hands of a committee, during which time local lords took advantage of the weakened central authority by building small castles and taking de facto control of the surrounding area. So when William reached adulthood, he dismissed the old guardians and surrounded himself with new advisers loyal to him. In 1053 he married Matilda, the daughter of the Duke of neighbouring Flanders. William had complete freedom to choose who he wanted, and by accounts the two had a happy, loving marriage. Unlike most Norman leaders, he had no known mistresses. His main rival for regional power was Henry I, who although officially King of France, in reality held effective authority in only the area immediately in and surrounding Paris. Although the two were allies when William was young, over time Henry grew fearful of William's rising power. In 1054, and again in 1057, Henry went to war to try to conquer Normandy from William, but on both occasions he was defeated. In 1060 the French king died, and William had no more need to worry about an invasion from within France, either from the king or any other neighbours, such as Flanders or Brittany. The duke was now unchallenged at home or abroad, in his early thirties and head of a confident and affluent principality. He was fortunate to be in the ideal position to consider an invasion of England, but first he would wait for the death of the English king. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. 
For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Edward the Confessor died on the 4th or 5th of January, 1066. Despite knowing he was dying for weeks, he had unfortunately failed to give a clear direction on who should succeed him. Sources differ on whether, during this time, he favoured William or Harold Godwinson. Either way, on his deathbed, he is said to have announced Harold to be his successor. Once the king had drawn his final breath, the earl took little time in making his move, since already by the 6th of January he had been crowned. This can be explained by the English court probably wanting to act quickly and decisively in expectation of a counterclaim from William. They were helped by the fact that all the nobles of the land were already together at Westminster for the Feast of Epiphany. On hearing that Harold had been crowned, William began plans to invade by building warships and gathering warrior nobles to his cause. King Harold must have been aware of these preparations and assembled his troops on the south coast in anticipation of the invasion. But the Norman invasion fleet remained in port for some months, unable to safely cross the channel due to unfavourable winds. On the 8th of September, provisions running out, Harold was forced to disband the army and return to London. In any case, it was now rather late in the year for a sea invasion. Unfortunately for Harold, the autumn of 1066 was unusually warm, and invasion season was still open. On that same day, Harold Hadrada and Tostig arrived, landing their fleet at the mouth of the River Tyne in Northumbria. Harold had sailed from Norway via the Shetlands and Orkney Islands, both then under Norwegian control, gathering troops along the way. He is thought to have had a total army of up to ten to 15,000 men and 240 to 300 longships, a full-scale invasion force. The first resistance was met at Scarborough, where Harold's demand for surrender was opposed. In the end, Harold responded by burning down the town, which in turn persuaded other Northumbrian towns to surrender to him. News of the invasion soon reached the Earl's Morcar of Northumbria and Edwin of Mercia, who hastily mobilised the local militia to confront the aggressors. But they were young and inexperienced, and perhaps underestimated the strength of the Vikings, who had now reached York, the capital of Northumbria. They could have hidden behind the walls of the city, but instead they met the Viking army across the river. After a full day's battle, the English army was cut to pieces, and many of those who tried to flee drowned in the surrounding marshlands. York immediately surrendered, and the Vikings celebrated by drinking and feasting. Harold Godwinson, in the meantime, was making his way north, having heard of the attack there. Having just recently disbanded his troops, he now needed to reassemble his army. First he gathered his elite soldiers and headed northwards, gathering recruits as he went. The 200 miles to York were covered in only four days, 
an astonishing feat. Thanks to their speed, Godwinson managed to catch the Vikings unprepared on the 25th of September. Hadrada's forces were approaching York. They wore only light armour, since they were expecting only to meet up with the citizens of York, with whom they would decide on who would now manage the town under Harold. Instead they saw Godwinson's forces approaching, heavily armed and armoured, and so began the Battle of Stamford Bridge. The King of England is said to have met his brother Tostig, and offered him back the earldom in return for laying down his arms. And what will you give my ally, Hadrada? Tostig asked. Six feet of English soil, replied the king, or since he is a tall man, a little more. Indeed, early in the battle, Hadrada was struck in the throat by an arrow and killed, having worn no body armour. The Viking army fought ferociously until the end of day, but in the end were decimated. It is said only 24 of the original 240 Norwegian warships were needed to sail back the survivors. The English army, however, also suffered great losses. Godwinson had won a great victory, but had no time to relax. Two days after the Battle of Stamford Bridge, on the 27th of September, the winds in the English Channel changed, allowing William's fleet to finally set sail from Normandy to England. It is believed they arrived the following day at Pevensey on the coast of East Sussex. The English king now needed to rush back down south to defend against a second invasion within a few days. William immediately engaged in a savage campaign of pillage and harrying of the Sussex lands, designed in part at least to provoke Harold into confronting him as soon as possible. The Norman army used cavalry more than most other powers of the period, including the Anglo-Saxons. Here were the beginnings of the type of warrior called knights who came to dominate medieval warfare. Knights were men of high-ranking families, trained in combat from a young age, so much so they were unqualified for any profession other than fighting, and indeed regarded any other occupation as below their dignity. Compare them with their Anglo-Saxon equivalents, the so-called Thanes, who, when not required for the defence of their country, would perfectly happily settle back into a routine of agriculture or trade. Normandy was producing large numbers of such knights, who, if they could find no one to fight in the immediate vicinity, went off to fight wars around Europe, including Italy, Spain, Constantinople and the Holy Lands. We know less about the raising of Norman infantry, who would have formed the largest part of the force. As for archers, they were important to both sides, although many of the Anglo-Saxon archers, as well as some infantry, were lagging behind Harold on his march down south. Harold's most sensible strategy at this point would have been to wait for all his forces to assemble, and maybe even to rest after the recent exertions. At this point, William had to win, while Harold could have afforded a draw. William could not have stayed bottled up on the Hastings Peninsula forever.
especially with winter approaching. Harold could have tried to draw William away from his ships into the interior of his country, if a territory unknown to him, that had preferably first been stripped in advance of anything that could have offered sustenance to the foreign army. William's stragglers and foragers could have then been cut off and destroyed. Harold's army could then have engaged the enemy at whatever time offered the best advantage when they had recovered from the stress of Stamford Bridge, two long forced marches, and had been supplemented by further levies. Harold was an experienced and successful general, so the question is why he did not do this. Instead there happened the Battle of Hastings on the 14th of October. Most likely William was the initiator of battle. Harold had chosen the good position on the battle site on the top of a slope and was perhaps expecting more troops to arrive. It is known that the remainder of the troops from Stamford Bridge were heading south, but still in London at the time. Harold may have intended solely to hold William in check and block his way to London. The Normans were divided into three main groups. The left units were the Bretons, along with those from Anjou, Poitou and Maine. The centre was held by the Normans, under the direct command of the Duke, and with many of his relatives and kinsmen grouped around the ducal party. The final division on the right consisted of the Frenchmen, along with some men from Picardy, Boulogne and Flanders. The front lines were archers, and behind them a line of foot soldiers armed with spears. The cavalry were held back in reserve. The battle opened with the Norman archers shooting uphill at the English shield wall, to little effect. William then sent the spearmen forward to attack the English, and they were met with a barrage of spears, axes and stones. The infantry was unable to force openings in the shield wall, and the cavalry advanced in support, but also failed to make headway. At some point the Bretons, in William's left flank, broke ranks and turned tail, carrying at least part of the section of the Norman army with them. Word went out that Duke William had been killed, which added to the confusion. The English forces began to pursue the fleeing invaders, but William rode through his forces, showing his face and yelling that he was still alive. A Norman counter-attacked, pushed the Anglo-Saxons back, now in disarray. If the Anglo-Saxon army had not been tempted to pursue, they would have been difficult to dislodge, but now they were in trouble. The result of the battle, at the end of the day, however, came down to which leader, if either, was killed. During the battle, William had three horses killed from under him, so he must have been in serious danger. But it was Harold who was killed, perhaps by an arrow in the eye. The English army fought on grimly after the king's death, but were heavily defeated. The survivors fled to London, where they elected the 14-year-old Edgar, son of Edward the Exile, as king. But he was never crowned, and seemed never to have gained a strong following. William's forces rapidly achieved the submission of Dover, Canterbury, Winchester and then London. William was crowned in Westminster Abbey on Christmas Day, 
which in its first full year of existence had saw the burial of one king and the coronation of two more. The English nobles at first submitted to William, but once they realised that William was not like Canute, and that he intended to bring his own men into hold the most powerful positions, they rebelled. At one point it looked as if a separate kingdom might be set up under young Edgar in the north, but William's response was as brutal as it was effective. He carried out the infamous harrying of the north in 1069 to 1070, a cold-blooded campaign to destroy everything in any area that resisted. Also, the Vikings had not quite finished. In 1069, a Danish fleet sailed into the Humber to assist rebels against the Normans, to be joined the following year by Sven, King of Denmark, himself who was met by people expecting him to conquer the whole country. William brought him off, and Sven must have realised he was dealing with no Ethelredian ready. Another fleet under his son Canute arrived to support a rebellion in 1075, but he dared not join battle with King William and went home. After these events, the Viking Age can be said to be over. By 1086, when the survey of Britain, the Doomsday Book was written, only 8% of English land remained in the hands of those who had owned it in 1066. French became the language of the chief nobles and started to become infused into everyday English, especially once Latin replaced English for official administrative purposes. The very nature of the English was altered, although a strong undercurrent of Anglo-Saxon influence remained. English laws, literature and political institutions, as well as the language, are still recognisably inherited from pre conquest times. Although William replaced the chief office holders, he kept the main institutions of government intact, since they worked well. After all, they were part of what had made England such a wealthy country, desirable of conquer. Without doubt, the Battle of Hastings was a turning point in the history of Europe, and England in particular. The Normans went on to gain power in Wales, Ireland and Scotland, which may not have happened if the outcome of Hastings had been different. The Normans gained much wealth and confidence to fight in many other parts of Europe, as I shall relate in future podcasts. The Norman victory also later led to centuries of inter-family conflict between the kings of England and France, culminating in the Hundred Years' War, which will be the subject of another future podcast. The outcome of the Battle of Hastings may have been very different. In this period, for example, a great deal depended on a ruler's longevity as well as his ability. Had any of Canute the Great's sons lived longer, or any of the numerous royal Anglo-Saxons not died before their time, events could have turned out different. England could have become more orientated to Scandinavia, or defended its Anglo-Saxon identity. Harold had rather presumably envisaged a northern empire, like that created by Canute the Great. 
In the next podcast, I move focus to the opposite end of Europe, to the southwest, and Byzantine Empire's growing problems. At this time, Constantinople is still probably the largest and most prosperous city in Europe, but it is about to face a terrible defeat against a powerful new force, the Turks, and commence a period of serious decline, with great consequences for the whole of Europe. If you are enjoying this podcast, I urge you to go to review it on iTunes. That really would be the best way to help publicity and gain new listeners. Thank you for listening to A History of Europe, Key Battles. Please join me next time for the Battle of Manzikert. Until then. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.